Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Professor Richard Cohen, a prominent colorectal surgeon who's medical director at the Cleveland Clinic London, chief of surgery and chair of digestive disease and integrated surgery institutes, professor of surgery at University College London and clinical professor of surgery at Cleveland Clinic's Lerner College of Medicine at the Case Western University. After completing his medical education at the University of Cambridge with distinction, he continued his training as a surgery registrar in Northwest England and later as a senior registrar at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospital Surgical Training Program. And whilst undergoing his training, Richard also carried out research at Yale University in the United States for his master's. He was appointed as a consultant surgeon to St. Mark's Hospital and Central Middlesex Hospital in London before moving to UCLH and then moved to the brand new London branch of the world famous Cleveland Clinic. He's always had an interest in leadership, change management and transformation, and has held senior posts in both the National Health Service and university settings, including as trust clinical director for patient flow. Richard's been a disruptor, bringing new techniques into his field and into Britain, and is a passionate educator. His hobby, he states, is his wife, four kids, and dogs. And he also told me that he's learning a kung fu art with a long staff, which he tells me he could be dangerous with. Thankfully, he is not dangerous with a scalpel or a colonoscope. Professor Richard Cohen, a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, join your program. You're most welcome. So let's start at the beginning. What, what was the inspiration that led you to become a surgeon and what sparked your interest in uh, specifically in colorectal work? Well, I can go back to when I was seven years old and the first essay I ever wrote at my primary school, which was one long paragraph with a, dot, a full stop at the end, said, when I grow up, I want to be a surgeon or a train driver. And I, I went for the, for the former. So I've always had an interest in, in, in surgery. And ever since starting medical school, I, I felt that I enjoyed surgery because it was something where you could actually do something that would make a difference, be it positive or negative, to the patient. Whereas I viewed my physician colleagues as sort of diagnostics and, and treating with medications as, as not as not as obvious an outcome, shall we say. So I made it my business to get a house job at Addenbrooke's for a man called Mr. Smelly, who was a very well-known surgeon at the time. In fact, his son is a consultant at Chelsea and Westminster, a good friend of mine. And he was my inspiration. And he took me through my first ever operation, which was actually to treat a hydrocele with a jabalay procedure. I remember it vividly, where one undoes the hydrocele and then sutures it above the cord. And, and I never looked back after that. So I then, again, made it my business to I get onto a rotation where I did some casualty and some orthopedics. And at the time, I was invited to be best man at a wedding in Manchester of one of my good mates from medical school who was marrying a girl who was the daughter of the king of surgery in Manchester, a chap called David Charlesworth. And at the wedding, after my terrible best man speech, he told me if ever I wanted a job, I should give him a ring, which I duly did. And I ended up on the South Manchester Senior House Officer Surgical Training Rotation. So having got onto the South Manchester Senior House Officer Training Rotation, which was a, a real old fashioned four or five nights on call on the trot type program with a lot of clinical experience, 
I was then appointed to a registrar training number in that region in Northwest Thames and cut my teeth in a hospital called Tameside. And I learnt a lot from my consultants there as to how to sort of how to operate. And then I was lucky to be sent by Mr. Charlesworth actually to work at Yale University in the States in New Haven and do my research for my MD there, which was work on endothelial cell biology. I came back from Yale University back into the Manchester rotating system. And at the time, senior registrar posts were very difficult to get in the UK. And I applied for a job in London based at King's and at St. Thomas's, where I was successful. I was interviewed and I was sent to meet one Lord McColl, with whom I had tea and biscuits. And he told me what he expected of a senior registrar at the time and worked on the South East Thames senior registrar rotation. Now, it's very interesting. So I was originally going to be a vascular surgeon, but I, I decided that I didn't, I didn't really like vascular surgery. And I found myself being increasingly interested in gut and in particular anal surgery. And I heard about this place called St. Mark's, which was the home of anorectal surgery in, in, the, in the United Kingdom, and decided that I needed to work there. And they had a system where you applied for a job known as the RSO post, Resident, Resident Surgical Officer post, which was a very senior registrar type position. And it was customary to apply multiple times before you got the post. And I, I applied three times and didn't get the post. And on the fourth time, I was interviewed by some very famous colorectal surgeons. And they said to me, your thesis was on vascular surgery, Richard. How can you expect us to appoint you to our fine colorectal institution? At which point I pointed out to them that of the panel, one of them had done their thesis on the vascular anatomy of the bile duct. Another one had done their thesis on anatomy of breast ducts, I think. And only one person on the panel had actually done a colorectal thesis. And that seemed to shake them enough to uh, appoint me where I became a resident surgical officer at St. Mark's Hospital for, for, for a year. And during that time, one of the senior surgeons there retired and I applied for his post, but I didn't get that. And my colleague, Alistair Windsor, got that uh, position. And then a bit further on, James Thompson, my, my predecessor there, retired. And I was lucky enough to be appointed to his position as a joint position between Central Middlesex and St. Mark's Hospitals. And I never really looked back. Uh, my love has always been treating complex colorectal problems, both in the abdomen and in particular perianal and rectal issues. We're, we're, we're going to dig into some of those issues, but I'm racking my brains because I had the good fortune to collaborate with, with the folks at St. Mark's. And I'm trying to remember who it was that did the, the thesis on the bile duct vasculature because I had later cause to reference it in some work I did on bile duct surgery. Let's dig into, let's start at the bottom, if you will. So I, I enjoy history as it relates to medicine. And in the appropriately named Shakespearean play, All's Well That Ends Well, one of the central plot devices is that the French king has a fistula and people, people think it was probably an anorectal fistula, which would have been known at the time. For our non-medical listeners, these are abnormal connections between two surfaces, such as the anus and vagina or anus and surrounding skin. These are common and troublesome. Talk to us about the most up-to-date approaches to fix these and maybe address the role of regenerative medicine concepts, scaffolds, stem cells and the like. And I note that you also published on the role of MRI in fistula and ano, which 
it's pretty much been a gold standard. Can you please comment on that? So take it away, Richard. So uh, you're referring to King Louis XIV of France, who developed uh, perianalabsis. In, in those days, it was known as knight's bum because the straw which they packed out horse saddles with would poke through the leather covering or the cloth covering into the knight's tail end. And we think that was the original description of, of perianal abscesses. So Louis XIV of France, he developed a fistula and he's a very interesting character. So in those days, it was considered a sin to clean yourself or wash because it implied that you'd been spending time with women of ill repute. And apparently his court smelled so bad that uh, when he had visitors from elsewhere, they had, they had to sort of open all the windows in order that people could go and see him. And he found his, his anal fistula very, very troublesome. And he employed the services of a chap called Felix, who was allowed to practice his surgery on prisoners in the dungeons of his castle and perfected the technique of laying the fistula open. And the story is that King Louis XIV of France was held down and he was such a hard, tough bloke that he didn't utter a single word as his anal fistula was duly laid open by Felix. And apparently the procedure had to be repeated at least another three times before it was finally dealt with. And as a result of that, Felix was given a huge sum of money, a huge plot of land. And from that, Louis XIV supported the formation of the surgical colleges in in France. So it was quite an important event, the treatment of that uh, particular uh, fistula. I, I once worked it out and, and Felix received approximately 25 million dollars or pounds of, of reward for that. Uh, and I've never managed to uh, to come anywhere near that myself in terms of uh, charging for such a, a procedure. So my work on fistula uh, started at St. Mark's and I'll tell you the story. So I employed a fellow to do some, some work who who's became a consultant himself. And our first project was on the use of fibrin glue in anal fistula. And unfortunately, that didn't prove to be terribly successful, but it was a great idea, a great concept, and the forefather of concepts such as the, the fistula plugs. And during that time, there was a lot of interest in using MRI scanning to assess anal fistula. And indeed, uh, we did a study at St. Mark's, which I was part of, where we proved that the use of MRI was so accurate that if you ignore the result of an MRI scan, the chance of a fistula recurring was 50%. Whereas if you took into account the findings on the MRI scan about secondary tracts and other complications of the fistula, you could reduce the recurrence rate down to 15%. And that was quite a, a seminal piece of work, which was done mainly by my, I, I was a small part of. And so James Thompson, who I used to work for uh, and, and who I took over, had a big fistula practice. And he would spend quite some time putting setons into fistula, which are a sort of thread-like drain devices that control the fistula. And he taught me anal reconstruction. So you can, in, in the worst case scenario, lay open fistulas and then rebuild the sphincter around where you've laid it open, either at the time or, or once the infection has gone away. Moving on a bit, the latest treatments for fistulas, as, as you've asked me about, there is a relatively new operation that I really like for fistulas that traverse both the inner and outer muscles of the back passage called the lift operation, where you burrow between the two muscles and tie the track off in the middle, which is something that I, I personally find a very effective uh, technique. And you mentioned stem cells. So stem cells are very interesting and they're, they're being used to try and treat a particular type of anal fistula 
which is associated with a disease called Crohn's disease. So patients with Crohn's disease often get issues in their gut, but they also get these fistula infections around their back passage, which some of which can be quite complex. And there's a company that produces stem cells off the shelf, and they kindly did a study where you injected these stem cells into and around the anal fistula, and the results are quite surprising and quite promising in patients with Crohn's disease with complex fistula. So that's a space to watch and, and is something of great interest. And so other treatments that have come recently, there, there's a device that's been around for a while that's gained a lot of popularity called VAAFT, which is literally a little scope that you put into the fistula and you can burn the fistula tract from within in order to encourage it to reduce in size. And that treatment reduces symptoms from anal fistula and can be combined with one of the definitive repair techniques, such as the one lift I've described, or when it's closed from the from the inside. I hope I'm not being too technical, Jonathan. No, no, this is, it's, it's wonderful. You know, our, our audience are largely medical, but we do have some interest in interested lay people. And, you know, for someone who is such an accomplished educator, you're doing a wonderful job uh, characterizing these things. Well, let's move away from the anus for a moment and go into the colon. Cancer of the colon is a scourge. You've done work on diagnostic testing for, uh, for colon cancer. Tell us more about that. And also, Maybe comment on the role of the UK colon cancer screening program and where you sit on people having screening colonoscopy. As, as I think you know, Richard, I've spent half my career in the United States where they don't have an orchestrated uh, program like we do here of sending people uh, the fit test, uh, blood testing. But access to screening colonoscopy is much easier. I mean, when I wanted to have one done here, the response I got from the GP was, why? Which baffled me a little bit. But anyway, there we go, colon cancer. So starting at your first point, so the answer is I have ongoing research at UCL, which looks into two areas of research. One is into uh, Crohn's disease and the histones that control the DNA production of a protein in, in effect. And that's coming along quite, quite nicely. Uh, histones are like switches that sit on DNA and turn on and off various sections of it. But my other study work is on a diagnostic test for colon cancer that involves various serological cytokines and other proteins that we find in, in certain combinations that are high in patients with colon cancer. And what we're hoping is that one day we'll be able to draw blood and, and do, a, do a test that, that uh, will tell you whether or not you have a high probability or not of having colon cancer. In fact, in fact, the same techniques we're applying to other cancers in the body. So that's a space to watch, but it's very early days on that. Uh, you know, it's very much bench work at the moment. Going to currently available techniques for diagnosing in large populations. So the original work was done on just fecal occult blood testing, which was quite a slightly crude technique. And that's been replaced now, as you say, by the FIT test, which is an immunological test that comes up with a number. So I'm proud to tell you that I've done one myself because I reached the age at which the NHS send this thing to you in the post. It's quite a process. So you have to uh, do a number two sort of on the toilet seat or somewhere else so that you can then scoop a bit into this special device that they send you and, you, and, and then you have to go and post it in the local letterbox. But it comes back with a number. So the FIT test uh, normally it's it's one to ten, and if it's in that range, you're you're safe, and there's there's no blood in the stool itself, and 
the chance of having polyps or bowel cancer is, is not zero, but it's very low. If the FIT test is, you know, 300, then you've got a problem and you need to have a colonoscopy. And there are patients uh, who have a FIT test of 11, and, and that's obviously a bit of a worry because it's just above a normal range. And those patients normally end up having, having colonoscopy. And the, the positive FIT tests do reveal quite significant numbers of patients who have polyps, which are these precursors to bowel cancer. So polyps are wart-like lesions that uh, sit in the lining of the, of the colon and the rectum. And after many, we think after many, many years, they, they eventually turn into cancers. And the evidence for that is that there are polyps that have cancer within them and that some cancers have a polypoid element. So we, we, we think that, that that's the, the way that uh, cancers develop. And there's a lot of work done on the on the actual genetic changes that occur from from the normal colon lining into polyp and, and into cancer. And the idea is that if you remove the polyp, you stop the patient from getting bowel cancer. And, and there are good studies from the states showing that cohorts of patients who have polyps removed get either less cancers or if they do get cancer at a much earlier stage. So I think the population testing for fit fecal blood is really good and is going to make a, make a big difference. And I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast who has received the opportunity to produce a FIT test from the National Bowel Cancer Screening Programme to definitely, definitely go ahead and do it, however embarrassing it is to, to, to do. In terms of having a colonoscopy, I think if you have symptoms, so if you have a change in your bowel habit, or you have rectal bleeding, then it is worth going to consult someone with a view to potentially having a colonoscopy. And I indeed, like yourself, I've, I've had colonoscopies myself. And for me, having a colonoscopy, the biggest issue is drinking the solution that you take the day before to clean yourself out because it is truly foul and disgusting. And I tell my patients that if they want to ameliorate the truly foul taste, they should drink it through a straw put ice in the solution and perhaps flavour it with something like elderflower or some other juice, not Ribena because it's red, uh, to make it more palatable. I had a, a dear friend in the United States who was a very, very good surgical oncologist who never had a screening colonoscopy and he succumbed to, to, to colorectal cancer. So yeah, prevention is definitely worth a ton of cure. Wasn't it Jeremy Jass who wrote, wrote the original paper on uh, the the polyp cancer sequence, I seem to recall. Yes, and, and Bogolstein is the other name I, I associate with it, which is the progress from uh, mucosa to polyp to, to malignancy. There are a lot of very clever people out there who, who've studied it in great detail. But crudely for you and I, the fact that if you take the polyps out, you stop the patients from getting bowel cancer, I think is a, it makes it a really worthwhile thing to do. So that I think it's really worthwhile screening patients for uh, blood in their feces with the, with this fit test uh, system. And, you know, if there's any doubt, having a colonoscopy is a really worthwhile thing to do. Of course, the downside to colonoscopy, Jonathan, is that it is associated with some risk. And uh, the risk is that the camera can damage the uh, the lining or indeed the full thickness of, of, of the colon and, and result in the need for um, salvage to, to help that patient. But in fairness, that, you know, in capable hands, colonoscopy is exceedingly safe. And, uh, and your comment about bowel prep, I used to tell my patients before doing one that, you know, if you feel that uh, 
the bottom is dropping out of your world. Drink this stuff and you'll feel the world drop out of your bottom. And also your comment about having the stuff very, very cold. I, I concur. That's, a, that's a, gr- a great trick. And also have lots of cold water to drink. But anyway, let's let's move on a bit. You've been involved in minimally invasive laparoscopic colorectal surgery for cancer, inflammatory bowel disease, diverticulosis, and so on. Tell us about the state of play, the role of robotics, methodologies to identify cancer margins. And you published a paper on uh, indocyanin green a few years back. What's the next technological or technical innovation just over the horizon or just above it? So the Indocyanin Green story is an interesting one. That was my colleague, Professor Manish Chand, who I work with at, at, at UCH and, and UCL. And that's quite an interesting trick because one of the major issues when you join bits of bowel together to maximise the chance that the bowel heals and doesn't leak is the expression we use in the in the post-operative period, is that there should be no tension on the join, which is something you can assess at the time of surgery. There are some technical aspects of the fact you've got to join it together without leaving any big gaps. But the main issue with, with bowel surgery is that there has to be a good blood supply to the end. So if you, if you stitch, no matter how good you are as a surgeon, if you stitch bits of bowel together that have no blood supply, the bowel will, will die away in the, in the ensuing time after the operation. And traditional ways of checking that there's blood supply to the end of the bowel is to, is to see if it bleeds when you cut it, which is a technique that I've used for, for many years. But the indocyanin green is quite interesting in that the way that works is that the patient is injected with indocyanin green, which is a fairly innocuous uh, substance by the anaesthetist during surgery. And one looks at the cut end of the bowel with a special frequency scope and you see uh, all the blood vessels outlined as, as a white on black, very obvious, and you can see whether the blood supply goes all the way up to the bowel ends or not. So it's quite a clever way of enhancing the probability that this blood supply to the bowel ends is good. Whether it makes the difference in terms of old-fashioned seeing if it's bleeding or not is a subject of, of, of many research publications, but it's, it's quite an interesting thing. And the other beauty of indocyanin green is that when it's injected, it highlights the ureters, so you can see the ureters if you, if, you, if you use it in a certain way. And the other thing it does is show lymph nodes, and my colleague Professor Chan has done work on, on injecting indocyanin green into tumours and seeing how the, how the lymph nodes, etc., uh, light up. So that was quite a sort of interesting adjunct to trying to ensure that when you stitch bits of bowel together that they're, that they're going to heat they're going to heal up in terms of the minimally invasive story I'm not known as being a particularly super skilled minimally invasive surgery I've, I've done a lot of open surgery in, in my time but I certainly adopted minimally invasive surgery and I, I view these things as being a tool in the cupboard and every every tool has it has its place I have younger colleagues who are unbelievably talented with uh, chopsticks as I, as, I, as, I, as I call them and of course, now the robot is coming to be yet another tool um, for, for, for use. And I, I think where the robot has real benefit, perhaps, is very low rectal cancer dissection, where you get this fantastic view uh, in, in, in the pelvis. And the other interesting, I think, very great use for the robot that's very difficult to do any other way is in dealing with hernias of the abdominal wall, because the robot can look up at the abdominal wall and you can suture uh, which is something you can't do laparoscopically or you'd have to open the patient. So I, I think that's a very interesting area as well. If you're asking me what the future holds for minimally invasive surgery, I think these things will all balance out and surgeons will come to know when they need to use one technique, when they need to use a, a, another technique. And I suspect that there'll be some automation of 
how how the robot is is used. My my idea will be one day you'll introduce into the abdominal cavity a sort of spider-like device which you will then walk around and 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 you'll be able to do it sort of totally within the abdomen. But we'll see. Uh, I've only ever seen that in sort of sci-fi type things, uh, but I, I suspect that will come to pass at some point. So I, I think minimally invasive surgery is great and has a place, and many patients have benefited from its from its use. Yeah, it's uh, what's that old expression? If you're a hammer, all the world's a nail. You don't want to be using a, a technique because it's there. Put the patient at the centre and do the right thing for the patient. So. I know in, in, in my clinical experience, there were these patients who would come in with abdominal pain and dysfunctional bowel habit, and they'd been investigated, investigated, and the diagnosis they had was irritable bowel disease, common, troublesome, hard to diagnose, diagnosis of exclusion in many cases. I, I recall years ago, while I was a medical student, I think it was Irving Taylor, who was doing work measuring transmission of peristaltic waves in the colon. I really ought to check back on that. Are there any new fangled ways to better diagnose and indeed to treat irritable bowel disease? Well, IBS is a very interesting issue. So it's essentially a constellation of symptoms where there's no obvious mechanical issue. So patients have constipation, diarrhea, bloating, difficulties with opening their bowels, the symptoms of which could all also uh, be ascribed to a, a bowel cancer or to something like diverticular disease or inflammatory bowel disease. So it's kind of a diagnosis of, uh, of exclusion, but it still causes a lot of issues. So patients are very symptomatic and there's a spectrum of some people who are absolutely flawed when they get their attacks of IBS versus you and I that get a bit of a bit of a sort of dodgy tummy every now and then and we just ignore it. I, I think treating patients who have very symptomatic irritable bowel syndrome is now the now in the realm of the neurogastroenterologist and they have several sort of tools at their disposal so there's a lot of interest now in, in the microbiome and my wife for instance mrs cohen swears by taking uh, a particular probiotic and again I'll, I'll supply you with a name afterwards and that seems to really help with her bloating but there are drugs now available to neurogastroenterologists to either treat constipation predominant IBS or diarrhea predominant uh, IBS so I, I I think that's an area that's that's increasingly being treated properly and it's a, it's a space to uh, a space to watch but the key for me with patients with symptoms is to make sure that that they don't have some other underlying cause and the worst one of all I'm afraid is diverticular disease because we all have diverticular disease as we get older and the question is are the symptoms from the diverticular disease or are the symptoms from irritable bowel syndrome and that can be a real difficult one to uh, tease apart and and uh, uh, the role of diet you know um, I remember back in the day we had visitors from from various African countries who'd never seen diverticulosis mind you they'd seen a lot of volvulus because of the very high fiber diets any any thoughts and I think again digging into my memory it was Neil Painter's work, maybe in the 70s, uh, was one of the people who published on the role of fibre in, in, um, in bowel disease. Yeah, again, that's, that's quite, quite an interesting area. So along with the microbiome these days, there's a lot of interest in, in things like allergy. And some patients in extreme version of that, like celiac disease, where people are, are, are very gluten allergic lactose intolerance that they all contribute to similar symptoms and, and need to be teased out as potential diagnoses 
dietary, uh, I'm afraid I'm not a great believer in punishing patients with diets unless there's a real specific reason to do so. So, and I tell patients, you know, we, we, we all know that if we go out and we have an, an ultra strong curry or something, we suffer the next day and that, uh, you know, you pay the price for, for, for what you've eaten the 24 to, to 72 hours beforehand. So I, I, I'm not sure that there is a real good dietary cure for IBS type symptoms, but, but I'm sure there are dietitians and other nutritionists out there that would, would disagree with me. So I'm also very much for you, whatever works for you. So if acupuncture helps you or uh, shiatsu massage or reflexology helps you with your IBS type symptoms, go for it. You know, and if you find a diet that helps you, I think that, that that's great. That's great too in my book. Yeah, I am um, also a believer if it makes you feel better, uh, uh, go for it. So aging population, we are seeing an adoption of poor diets, you know, fast foods and such like. Are you, are you seeing more diverticular disease? And I also recall going back, there were people looking at ways to ablate these little outpouchings, these ticks, by clipping them or filling them with adherent scaffolds to try and solve the problem. And just as for my other questions, what's commonly done to address diverticulosis other than emergency or elective surgery? And do you think there's anything on the horizon? So, um, as I alluded to before, I think in the, in the West, we, we're all susceptible to getting diverticular disease. And essentially, it's wear and tear. So you get uh, outpouchings of the lining of the bowel through the, through the muscle. And the theory in diverticulitis, for instance, is that one of those pouches, the, the ostium, the entrance of the pouch gets blocked and then you get swelling and inflammation. And in the worst case scenario, which is very rare, thankfully, uh, a full, full blown uh, perforation. Are we seeing more of it? I, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think it's always uh, been around. I think we're much better at not operating on patients with uh, diverticular disease. So attacks of diverticulitis, for instance, where it's inflamed and now treated very successfully with both intravenous and oral antibiotics. And the, the trigger, we're much less trigger happy to, to, to go and take colons out because the patient's had an attack of diverticulitis. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we're much better at educating people that if they have an attack, you know, they seek medical advice and, and, and may, may well require a treatment with a short course of antibiotics. So for, for me, this, the role of surgery in treating patients who've not had a, an acute emergency perforation, you know, patients who have episodes of diverticulitis or grumbling discomfort, it's all about the number of episodes they're having. So if you have one episode every three years, I probably wouldn't want to do an operation. If you're having an, opera, uh, an episode every other week, then yes, an operation is in order. And normally the operation consists of removing the, the, the S-bend, the sigmoid segment of the colon, which is the one that's most affected by diverticular disease. Because the truth is that many of these patients have got diverticular everywhere in the colon, but they're most concentrated and they cause the mischief in the, in the, in the sigmoid. And the surgery, as we've talked before, can be done with keyhole surgery or, 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 or traditional surgery to remove that, uh, that segment. Clever things to um, do endoscopically to sort of clip the holes, I, I don't think have been very successful. The only time when endoscopic treatment for diverticular complication is successful is in bleeding. So very rarely patients with diverticular disease can bleed torrentially from the diverticulum. And the clever interventional endoscopist today can colonoscope the patients and either inject or clip the bleeders. So I think that does have a role, but otherwise I, I, I've not seen that. 
in terms of uh, what I'd like to see in the future, I suppose it's it's recognition that patients have that susceptibility. And uh, you can tell if they've got diverticulitis with a blood test so that the inflammatory markers are raised in patients with diverticulitis as opposed to inflammatory bowel, as opposed to, sorry, irritable bowel disease. And I think, you know, knowing when to take a course of antibiotics is, is very helpful with those patients. Okay. So we, we started at the anus, we've gone round the colon. Let's come back to the anus. So you've published on hemorrhoids as, or piles, as we Brits charmingly call them. And you've also supervised thesis work in this area. There are a plethora of ways to treat these. What's your favorite approach? And I also recall when visiting India, I saw a chap presenting a paper that maintained that hemorrhoids were not just a result of poor diet, but the position one took to defecate. His work favored the knees high in a squatting stance. And as I was researching what to chat to you about, Richard, I recall that I have in a box somewhere two T-shirts. One was a T-shirt this guy gave out, which was a recommending recommended position to poo. And the other was a T-shirt uh, distributed by a company that made bowel preparation for colonoscopy that showed pooing positions from around the world. And I was instructed by my significant other to never wear that T-shirt in public. So hemorrhoids, Richard. Yeah, hemorrhoids. That, that's uh, I've spent my life trying to treat patients with with uh, with hemorrhoids. So, what are they? I mean, they are cushions of tissue in the anal canal that have both arterial and, and venous aspects to them. They tend to bleed heavily when they bleed uh, bright red blood. So they're not venous uh, channels. And the best theory I've I've come across yet is is they're like sort of tea bags on strings. And as one defecates over many many years with laxity of the collagen support, uh, the, the, the lining of the bowel with all these cushions filled with vessels gets pushed out. And then you get the classical hemorrhoidal disease that, that you and I have, have seen over many, many, many years. I think the treatment of hemorrhoids has evolved over the last few decades. So there's office treatments. My uh, I, I like injecting hemorrhoids. I'm not sure how effective it is, but I have a group of patients that swear by having intermittent injection sclerotherapy. I've got colleagues that rubber band ligate them in, in, in their offices, which is uh, an also an effective treatment. But of late, there are several newer treatments that have come up. So the first one was the concept of, of examining the patient with a device that would tell you where the blood vessel is that feeds the hemorrhoid, that the, the, the halo and THD systems where a suture could be placed at the site where the hemorrhoid was being fed and at the same time, if there was an element of prolapse, the hemorrhoid could be lifted inside. So the suture ligation, rectopexy, or hemorrhoidopexy rather, of hemorrhoids has become popular over the last few years. Uh, there's a device available now where you can apply radiofrequency energy to, to ablate the hemorrhoids, which is something that, that, that I've helped popularise in, in, in the UK and it's quite effective. And then there's the traditional hemorrhoidectomy and the staple hemorrhoidectomy, which is another version of, of excisional hemorrhoidectomy. And for me, it's very much horses for courses. So if a patient comes to you with tiny internal hemorrhoids, they can be treated with one or other of the office procedures according to the preference of the surgeon uh, treating the patient. But if they've got really big, juicy hemorrhoids that come out when they go to the toilet or out all the time, I think they need a, a proper treatment with one of the uh, operative measures. So it's sort of Horses for courses is the expression that I would use. Right. So we've come to the end, literally and metaphorically. Actually, no, before I do that, position of defecation. Thoughts? 
Oh yeah, um, yeah. I suppose that, I mean all our biofeedback teams train patients to, as you say, put put, put a stool under their feet so that uh, then there must be something in that. So yes, and I, I know that from around the world, people adopt different positions depending on where they're where they're opening their bowels. So I think there's probably something a little bit in it. Yes. Okay, good. So I was going to say you were granted three wishes to improve colorectal healthcare globally. What what would those wishes be? I, I think the wishes would be earlier diagnosis of um, of bowel cancer, and and we have the wherewithal to do that with the with the uh, uh, public health screening systems uh, that we talked about at the beginning of this of this talk. I think the multidisciplinary management of inflammatory bowel disease, um, where new drugs are coming out all the time that are, are reducing the need for surgery. And I hope that one day those conditions will be treated completely medically. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that they, that they will be. And I would hope that uh, we would know in the future exactly or more carefully which tool to use for which problem in any of the areas where we actually operate. So folks, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I'd like to thank you for being with us uh, and sharing your knowledge. Professor Richard Cohen, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. It's been my pleasure to talk to you as well, Jonathan. Thank you very much. So folks, please subscribe to ensure you never miss an episode. Like us on social media, I'm told that helps. Check out the swelling archives rather than the swelling hemorrhoids. And join us next week for another episode of the EMJ podcast. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.